Acts chapter 18. We're just going to look at one verse together this morning. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Uh, Today is an extremely special day for our church. We get to do something that actually the church has been doing for literally hundreds of years now. A little over 2,000 years. And uh, it's something that the church has done since its birth. Since day one of its inception. Uh, Today we have a baptism. And if you're new, you've come with a friend. Or maybe you came to see a friend be baptized Uh, We are so glad that you get to join us for this today. And uh, what we're about to do, I think it's honestly, it's really simple. Uh, It's really basic. Even our setting here is really simple and basic. And yet what's going to happen this morning is at the same time extremely meaningful and profound. Uh, People have put their trust in Jesus Christ to cleanse them from their sins and to wash all of their sins away. They put their trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross to save them from God's wrath. And they recognize that. And they want to testify this morning to that fact by being baptized and let you all know that Jesus Christ has saved them from their sin and made them a new creature. And that's actually God's plan, that people would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save them and then be baptized. Once people become followers of Jesus Christ and they've turned from their sin, they've repented and they've trusted in Christ, God wants them to be baptized. Shortly before Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, uh, he said these words, famous words to his followers at the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, uh, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, uh, this is after he's died, he's been buried, he's uh, risen again, and he spent a little bit of time on earth after that, and he's getting ready to ascend and go back into heaven uh, with God the Father. And right before he ascended, here's what he said to his followers. He said, go therefore and make disciples. And that word disciples basically means learners or followers of Jesus. Jesus was telling them, you are my followers. Now go out and tell more people the good news about what I've done so that they too can follow me. Go therefore and make disciples, Jesus followers of all the nations. And then once that's been done, after people have followed Jesus, it says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's God's plan, that people would trust in Christ and then be baptized. But I think that passages like the one that I just read and the one that we're about to look at this morning are also reminders uh, of several things. But one thing I think stands out at least in my mind this morning, and that is that there are people everywhere who have not yet realized God's good plan for them. Literally everywhere. He's telling his followers to go to all the nations and tell people about Jesus, which means there are people in every city, in every province, in every nation, all around the globe who haven't heard about Jesus. And they are yet to realize God's good plan for them. And maybe, just maybe, one of those people is actually you. Acts 18, verse 8, tells us about a group of people that if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, we've been learning about. Uh, They're called the Corinthians. They live in a place, a city called Corinth. And they also had absolutely no idea, or maybe just a partial idea, but not a good idea, of what God's good plan for them was until one day a man shows up in their city. His name is Paul. And Paul shows up in Corinth, and he just starts telling all these people about Jesus right away. He just starts, everywhere he's going, he's telling people about Jesus of Nazareth. A man named Jesus Christ. And something happened to these people, the Corinthians, that God wants to happen to you, and he wants to happen to people all over the face of this globe. 
Uh, if you're there in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, let's, let's look at this verse. Paul has gone around Corinth. He's been telling people about Jesus. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, we read this. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. That's Jesus. Together with his entire household, his whole family. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. I just want to ask everyone here two really simple questions this morning, and it doesn't matter who you are. I recognize we have people here this morning, and you have been in church your whole life, maybe even decades, and there are others of you who uh, maybe you've, maybe this is your first time in any kind of church setting whatsoever. Uh, there are those here who are five years old, and there may be those who are much, much older. Uh, whether you're old or young, whether you've been to church before or not, been going your whole life, or whether you know hardly anything about the Bible at all, or maybe you know a ton. Whoever you are, I want to ask everybody the same two questions based on Acts 18, verse 8. Here's the first question. It's really simple. Have you believed? The verse that I just read said that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, they believed. What Paul shared was something that many of these people, the Corinthians, they had never heard before. I mean, he's coming to them and he's sharing something with them that they have literally never heard. Or maybe for some of them, they had heard something, uh, but they hadn't put all the pieces together uh, by any means. But he was telling them something about Jesus. And when he told them this news about Jesus, we read that they believed. Just two chapters earlier, uh, if you look back at Acts chapter 16, Verse 31, Paul's actually in a totally different city. He's in the city of Philippi, and he's telling another man about Jesus. And as he tells this man about Jesus, he said to him in Acts 16, verse 31, he says the same thing. Basically, believe in the Lord Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. But then notice what he says next. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. In other words, if you believe, Paul, it's like Paul is saying, if you believe what I'm telling you about Jesus then you will be saved from experiencing the eternal wrath of God in hell for your sin. Whatever this message is that Paul is sharing, it is huge. And what that also means is that there is a kind of faith, or we might say a kind of belief, that's essential for a person to have in order for that person to be cleansed from their sin. And in order for that person to be saved from God's wrath, and in order for that person to be able to spend eternity in heaven with God. And we sometimes call that kind of faith saving faith. So, uh, back to our question, have you believed? I'm not asking about the person sitting next to you or the person somewhere else in this room. You specifically. Have you believed? Uh, you may not actually be able to answer that question. It may be that you go, well, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I have or not, or I think it's possible. Uh, I'm not really sure. And what I want to do this morning is help you be able to answer that question with a very simple, yes, I have, or no, I, I haven't done that, at least not yet. This belief, this saving faith requires three things. We might say that there are three requirements of saving faith or three essentials. The first is that belief requires a basic knowledge of the facts. How, how basic of a knowledge are we talking about here? So basic that even a child could grasp. Uh, we have children sitting here this morning, young children. Uh, children uh, five, six, seven years old. This uh, 
body of facts is so basic that even a small child could grasp it. Saving faith requires knowledge of a certain set of facts. In other words, there's a content that a person needs to know and believe about Jesus. And I just want to share kind of a a basic sampling of these facts. Facts about Jesus. Uh, For starters, Jesus is God and he has always been. Uh, In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father, speaking of God the Father, he said, we are one. He also said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God and he's always been. There's never, there, there was never a time when Jesus was not. We talk about Jesus being born. Yes, that happened. And he took on flesh and blood. He took on humanity. But he's always existed in heaven before that. Jesus is God and he's always been. And something that may surprise you is that actually Jesus created you for his own pleasure and glory. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we read, and this is, it's talking about Jesus, that all things were created by him. All things were created by Jesus. And it doesn't just say that. It, it says not only were all things created by Jesus, all things were created for Jesus, for him. All things were created by him and for him. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus Christ created you. And that you were created for a very specific purpose. What is that purpose? God want, He created you to bring him pleasure and glory and honor. Which is really cool when you think about it. It means that your life has a purpose. You, you aren't just some random product of evolution. And you're just out there going through life, seeing what will happen. No, God created you. And he created you for his own pleasure and glory. How do you live for God's pleasure and glory? Well, you love him and you obey his commands. And that's where the problem comes in. Because we haven't done that. The Bible also says that you and I are sinners who deserve God's judgment. You may recall Romans 3 verse 23. It says that all have sinned. You, me, everyone. We've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. We fall short of God's standard. And consequently, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages or payment of that sin is death. And not just physical death, eternal death, eternal punishment. What you and I deserve for our sin is to experience God's wrath for all of eternity. And for some people, that's hard to grasp. How could a good God send people to hell? That's the only thing that any of us deserve. He's a just judge. We all deserve that. What's ironic is that anyone would ever get to heaven. Some other facts about Jesus. Jesus died in your place to pay the price for your sins. You are a sinner deserving God's wrath. You haven't lived uh, the way that God created you to live. And God knows that. And he's done something about that. And God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth. So that he could sacrificially give his life on the cross. Uh, to pay the price for your sins in your place as a substitute. And by doing that, actually satisfy God's wrath over your sins. So that if you'll repent and believe, you can be at peace with God. Jesus died in your place to pay the price for your sins. The Bible also teaches that Jesus, after he died, he was buried. And three days later, he rose again. And the Bible is very, very clear that Jesus is enough to save you from your sins. Enough, period. Jesus is the only way to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that this happens not by works. By grace you have been saved. In other words, you can't work really hard. You don't need Jesus plus a mixture of your good works to get to heaven. Like, okay, Jesus is going to do his part over here. And then I need to over here, I need to do all my stuff. Like, I need to clean myself up and become good enough for Jesus to accept me. 
Well, the Bible's quite clear. It's not by works. You, you can't buy God. You can't buy God's favor. God is so clear that he is not up for sale. You can't purchase his favor. You can't purchase heaven. Cleansing from sin and being made right with God, having your sins forgiven, God says that's a gift. It's by grace that you are saved. It's a free gift. So to start, the first requirement is that belief requires a basic, basic knowledge of the facts. And by the way, parents, I think as you work with your kids, you're trying to maybe discern some of these things. Have my kids come to saving faith? Well, first requirement, is there a basic knowledge of the facts? Do you, do you have this basic understanding of what I just shared? A second requirement, belief requires full conviction of those facts. It's not enough to know the facts about Jesus. You must accept and agree to those facts and say, okay, those are the facts, and I believe those facts to be true. You must be convicted that those facts are true and right. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 uses this phrase. It talks about having full assurance of faith, being fully assured, being fully convinced or convicted about something. And so I would ask you this, are you fully assured about what the Bible says about Jesus in the way of salvation? The, the things I just told you, that basic body of facts, are you fully assured that those are right and true? Uh, some follow-up questions to that. Is there anything that you believe other than that good news in terms of, of how you might get to heaven, how you might be right with God? Do you think that there might be some other way to get to heaven? You know what? Some person could get to heaven through Jesus and another person could get to heaven by being good or by doing this or by doing that. There's multiple ways. No, 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 no. No, you have to be convinced that Jesus is the only way, period. Or do you wonder if Jesus really was a historical figure or if he really rose from the grave or if he really is God? You may be wondering if your faith in those facts is strong enough to be this saving type of faith. And I think a question that I like to ask is, okay, well, we could look at it. Is your faith strong enough? Do, do you believe those facts? But we could actually flip that around, which I think is helpful. Maybe what could it be asked is this. Would you deny those facts? Would you say, no, that is not true. Jesus is not God. Jesus cannot save me from my sins. Denial and doubt are the opposites of belief. So uh, saving faith that requires this knowledge of the facts, there's a certain basic set of facts you have to understand. And and then the second requirement is you have to be sitting there going, yeah, you know what, those facts, that basic body, that's true, that's accurate. I'm convinced that that's right. If a person were to get to heaven, that's how it would be done. But saving faith... While it does involve that knowledge of the facts and conviction of those facts, there is a third requirement that is absolutely essential. Knowing those facts, believing that they are true, and that that's how a person would get to heaven, that's not enough. Not enough to make you a Christian. And the verse that I think makes this quite clear is James chapter 2, verse 19. And it says this, it's talking about the demons, uh, fallen angels. And it says that the demons believe. And believing, it says, they tremble. The demons believe and they shudder. Did you know that Satan knows this body of facts? He's well acquainted with them. He knows all the facts about the good news about Jesus. And you know what else? He believes them to be true. He knows they are true. Satan meets the first two requirements. And yet, do you think Satan is going to spend eternity in heaven? No, absolutely not. There's something lacking, and it's this third requirement. 
Belief requires complete trust in the facts. Saving faith involves this actually entrusting yourself into the hands of Jesus Christ. There, there needs to be actually a positive response to the facts that are known and believed. Those facts must be embraced. You must trust Jesus to save you from your sins. Uh, some passages talk about believing in your heart or with all of your heart. Saving faith, we might say, it's not just this knowledge up here. People often talk about how the, the, the difference of being saved and not saved, it's this difference of 18 inches, the, the distance from your head to your heart. You can have all the knowledge, but the question is, have you put your trust in Jesus? It's the whole being being cast upon Jesus. And, uh, in my mind, there's a pretty simple way to illustrate this. I've done it before, and I just want to do it again, and probably again and again, because I think it's simple, I think it's helpful. You guys are all sitting in chairs, or at least most of you, maybe a few of you forgot your chairs, sorry about that. But most of you are sitting in a chair. That's my chair over there in the corner, that white one. I could look at that chair and I could say, you know what, that's a chair. It has four legs. And theoretically, on paper, whenever that chair was sold, it said that it would hold up a max capacity of 250 to 300 pounds. I don't know. But I could look at that chair and go, those are the facts. And I could actually stand here and say, I'm, I believe those facts are true. I believe that that's a chair with four legs. I believe that it would support my weight. Thankfully, I'm below the 300-pound threshold. I think I could go sit in that chair. But right now, I'm standing right here, and my chair is over there. This, this third element of faith, if we were to put it in very practical terms, would involve me walking over there to my chair and sitting completely down in it, resting all of my weight on it. Now, another way that I, I could illustrate that, some of you, the bow season just started hunting. I know maybe many of you aren't bow hunters, but some of you are. You climb up into tree stands. I, I live right next door. I've got a couple tree stands back here in the woods. And most of the trees around here are poplar, which aren't the greatest trees uh, for putting all your weight into. And if I'm going to climb up uh, into one of these tree stands and sit down, every time I do that, I'm always like, yeah, this tree could fall. <laughs> but I, I go to that tree and I think, okay, that's a tree. Here's a tree stand, and theoretically, I could climb up into that tree, and it should support my weight. And I know that those are the facts. I'm convinced those facts are true. But the third step, the third requirement, so to speak, is me climbing up each of those steps, sitting down 15 feet up in that tree, and all of my weight is suspended there. And I think that both of those illustrations very much capture what's going on with saving faith. Yeah, you can know the facts. That's great. You can be convinced those facts are true. But the question is this. Have you responded positively to those facts? Have you put all of your weight in the chair? Have you put cast your whole life and your salvation from your sins and your cleansing? Have you put all of that on Jesus? And are you actively trusting him to save you from your sins and nothing else? Jesus plus nothing. Have you thrown yourself on Jesus to save you from your sins? Those are the three requirements of saving faith. And as we would talk about this faith or belief, I should also highlight that this belief is always accompanied by repentance. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, Repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent means to turn. And here's what happens. If you turn in faith towards Jesus, if you turn and you put your trust in him, like I was just talking about, that turning towards Jesus is turning your back on something else. Is turning away from your sin. The word repent, as I mentioned, simply means to turn. 
Turning to Jesus in faith means turning away from your sin. God, I don't want my sin. I know that you didn't create me for this, and I want to fight it now. I want to to turn away from it and put my trust in you. So this faith, this trusting in Christ, it really does require an acknowledgement of your sin to God, a confessing of your sin to God, saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it. God, this sin, it's... I've broken your laws and I deserve your wrath. I deserve your eternal punishment. God, I acknowledge that. I'm not going to fight that. That's true. It's accurate. God, I confess that sin to you. And I'm trusting, uh, just as as I just described it, I know these facts. I'm convinced they are true. And I am trusting on you and you alone to save me from my sins. And then third, just committing your life to Christ. God, here's my life. It's yours now. So this acknowledgement of sin, this believing, this trust, and then, and then this commitment of your life to Jesus. I would ask you, have you believed? Have you done that? The good news that Paul was sharing about Jesus and that I just shared today, that, that news is for everyone. And I want to show you that from God's Word. In Acts chapter 18, verse 8, the verse that I asked you to turn to, it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue with his entire family, what did he do? He believed. And I think what we have there is a reminder that this good news, on the one hand, it is for very religious, moral people who think they are good. In all reality, they're not. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. The the synagogue was a Jewish gathering place and place of teaching and learning and, and worshiping and all these different things. This man is probably moral to an extremely heightened degree from a human perspective. He's probably tried to obey the Mosaic law and do all the things that God required in the Old Testament law. And yet all of a sudden he hears about Jesus and that he's a sinner and that, that that's not all that those good deeds are not going to save him. He's not clean. Even in all of his moral righteousness, he's defiled. And he hears this good news about Jesus and he repents and he believes. Crispus was religious and probably thought that he was on his way to heaven, but he wasn't until Acts 18 verse 8. But do you know who else this good news is for? Not just uh, religious, even people who uh, many of the world, people of the world would look at around and go, wow, that's a pretty good person. It's, it's good news for everyone. People on the exact opposite side of this, this spectrum, people who might, uh, everybody might look at and go, wow, those people are really wicked and worldly, and they're definitely on their way to hell. Acts 18, verse 8 also mentions the Corinthians. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verses 9 to 11 says about these people what they were like before they believed. Paul's writing to them after they put their trust in Christ. And he says this to them. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says these words to them. He says, and such were some of you. That, that was the Corinthians. In mass, these, these people are, are immoral. They're ungodly. They're, they're leading wicked lives. And Paul says, such were some of you, until Acts chapter 18, verse 8 happened. Such were some of you. And then he continues, he says, but you were washed You were sanctified. In other words, you were made holy and you were justified. You were declared righteous by God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. 
Jesus is good news for everyone. And I, I want to come back to our question. Have you believed? And if not, uh, maybe you're sitting here for the first time. It's kind of become crystal clear. I've had this knowledge. I've, maybe you've even had a generally positive disposition towards Jesus and what the Bible says. But have you actively put your trust in Jesus Christ? In Jesus Christ? And if not, I would just think, encourage you. Why don't you cry out to Jesus today and just ask him to save you? Acknowledging your sin, telling God, telling Jesus you trust in what he did on the cross and who he is and what he's done. And God, here's my life. That's a really simple prayer that can happen right here, right now, even as I'm talking. Second question for you. Have you been baptized? Notice the sequence of events there in Acts chapter 18, verse 8. It says, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul, they believed. That's what we were just talking about. And then it says, and we're baptized. After a person believes, they put their trust in Jesus Christ. They put all their weight in the chair, so to speak. God wants that person to be baptized. In fact, um, baptism, just, just to be clear, that, that sequence is really important. Baptism should follow belief. And Matthew 28, verse 19 also uh, has that same sequence. But Matthew 28, 19, and 20 commands believers to be baptized He tells Jesus' followers, go tell people about me, share this good news with them like I've been doing with you today. And when people put their trust in Christ, they should be baptized. Baptism is an act of obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Just to be clear, it does not save. Rather, it's something that saved people do. They believe, they put their trust in Christ, they're saved, and then they're baptized. So I want to explain what's going to happen a little bit this morning. Um, and I say a lot of these things every time we have a baptism, but I think it's really important. Many of you have been to baptisms before in all different kinds of settings. Uh, but what you are about to witness may be different, and what we're doing may, it may be different. It's purpose and it's meaning, it's significance. Lots of people in religious organizations baptize. They really do. So please don't assume that you understand what's going on. Just let me briefly explain a little bit about b- baptism. Biblically, you might think of baptism this way. Uh, You might think of it as going public. Going public with something. Or you might think of it as going on record about something. I want to go on record in front of all of you that. What's this going public? What is this something about? What is the going on record about something? What is that something? About what? About the fact that God has saved me. About the fact that Jesus has saved me and now my life is his and I'm new. Baptism is a God-commanded way that a person publicly says, God has saved me, and I am his. In fact, it's one of the very first ways that we evangelize. It's one of the very first ways that we tell other people the good news about Jesus, by being baptized ourselves. Let me explain a bit more. Uh, In just a few moments, we have have two people who are going to be baptized this morning. They're going to share a little bit of their stories. And any time we do this, as people share their stories, I think that you can listen for more or less a common thread. And you may just get bits and pieces of it with each person that shares something. But every person is more or less saying, I'm a sinner and I get that. I'm a sinner and I fall short of God's glory and I recognize that I deserve God's eternal wrath and hell for my sin. I mean, these people are saying that. I, I recognize that. But God saved me from his wrath through Jesus. Jesus sacrificed his life for me. As my substitute on the, on the cross to satisfy God's wrath for my sin. And now peace has been secured between me and God. God saved me 
by his grace. It was a free gift. I didn't buy this. I didn't earn this. I didn't perform to get this. It was a free gift to God, from God, to me, taken by faith. I learned what the Bible said about Jesus, what he did. I learned the facts. I'm convicted that those facts are true. And I'm trusting in Jesus alone to save me. And consequently, I'm not the same person that I once was. I'm new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And baptism portrays that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, So what are these two people going public about? That God has saved them and their lives belong to Jesus now. Which is awesome. It's a cause for celebration. Uh, Just to be clear, baptism is a command. It does not save or cleanse. What it does, it testifies to that. And it's an amazing picture. What, uh, we read about Jesus dying, being buried, and then rising again. And baptism uh, portrays that in many ways. You have a person going under the water. And it's signifying that a death has happened. That this person has died to their sin. They're no longer a slave to it. They're no longer bound to it. And then they come up out of the water, uh, just as Jesus rose from the grave. And, now, and it's portraying this new life. This new birth. That this person... Uh, is has been raised with Christ. And then they're going to get up. They'll, they'll go down in the water and they'll get off and they'll, they'll walk off this trailer down, down the ladder and they'll go live their life. And so all we have is this amazing picture of death and new life and a new life begun as these people go out and they walk away and they walk into life, so to speak, their new life in Christ. So second question, have you been baptized? Uh, if you believed and you haven't been baptized, uh, God wants you to be. That's a command, and it's a way that you testify publicly to what he has done for you. And that's a conversation I would love to have with you. I think some people just haven't even thought about it or don't realize how significant it is. But I know I would love to sit down and chat with you, and we'd love to make plans for you to be baptized as well. So God wants you to believe and be baptized. That's just the beginning. Many of you, the beginning began a long time ago. Some of you, it wasn't that long ago. Maybe you trusted Christ six months ago. Some of you, it's literally been like four decades now, maybe more. And everything I just shared, nothing was new. You knew it all. You're very familiar with it. And yet I think today should take you back to that day when when Christ saved you from your sins and that day when you were baptized. Uh, From time to time, we'll go uh, to weddings, my wife and I. And I always find it funny. I can almost predict what's going to happen. My wife and I are going to go get ushered into our seat and we're going to sit down and and the music is playing and the groom comes out and the bride comes up the aisle. And next thing I know, my wife snuggled up next to me and she's holding my arm. And every time, the exact same thing's happening. We're sitting there watching this wedding and as we watch it, it's hard not to think about the fact of, well, this, you know, so many years ago, we remember when we did this. And it just kind of triggers all of these emotions and and feelings of how special that day was. And I think uh, as as we witness other people testify to their faith in Christ and be baptized, I hope your own salvation hasn't become something that you're cold and callous about. And that was six months ago. That was 40 years ago. Do you remember the day that God summoned you to new life? And, And you, it's like you knew these facts and your eyes were opened and you believed. Where you put your faith in Christ and where you were baptized, today should be a day where we celebrate with these people and we celebrate anew what God has done for us through Christ. 
I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me at this time. I just want to close in prayer before we move to the baptism part of our service.